This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Today is a special day for our communities and our nation. It's Election Day. And I think that's a pretty cool thing, that we get a say in who our local and national officials are. And in a way, we kind of get a choice. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like these choices can be really difficult. Researching policies and different candidates' stances on different things and figuring out what party you want to affiliate with, if any at all. It's such a blessing to be able to choose, but sometimes it can be really difficult. So that's what I wanted to focus on today. I looked up some interviews that might give us some tips to help us learn how to make decisions better and hopefully make this whole decision process a little bit easier. So this first one is with Art Markman. I'll play a portion of his interview with Matt where he talks all about how to make better decisions in life, especially when you have conflicting goals. You wrote an article, and it was, uh, I guess it was published in um, Psychology Today. Is mm-hmm. Talk to us about the, this, uh, is it, it's dueling commitments, really. It's dueling uh, conflicts that tend to kind of throw us off. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so let's think about two different kinds of, 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 of aspects of decisions. So the first is, imagine I've got uh, just a, a decision that's hard because it requires a trade-off. So, um, you know, I, you're trying to move to a new apartment, and, and the apartment has, one of the apartments is really big, the other one's kind of small, but the one that's small is close to where you work. Right. And the one that's big is far from where you work. So you've got to trade off the size of the apartment and the, uh, and the commute. Now, ordinarily, we actually find those kinds of decisions really difficult. And, and often, we'll, we'll actually push off the decision till later because we don't even want to deal with it. But why why is that so difficult? Well, we because because we hate making trade-offs. You know, that's true. Yeah, you don't want to lose anything. That's right. You know, we so so we prefer to keep our options open, right? You hear people say this all the time. Yeah. I'm going to keep my options open in the hope that uh, sometime in the future somebody will present you with an opportunity that doesn't require a trade-off at all. Hmm. In fact, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll pick a compromise instead so that we don't have to make the trade-off. So, for example, you know, you go to you go to Bed Bath and Beyond, right? And right. and you face the wall of blenders, right? You <laughs> the know, blender and, wall. You know, and and there's the you know, and those blenders have have trade-offs, right? There's the there's the cheap rickety blender that costs you almost nothing, and then there's that Rolls Royce of blenders that costs you know several hundred dollars, but it it will it will slice and dice everything. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's that middle option, right? It's it's not that expensive, and it and it and it does some of the things that you might want to do. And a lot of times you'll find people will just go into stores and and pick that compromise one without even really thinking about it because they think, well, this 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 means I don't have to make the trade off. I'm getting a little bit of each. It's I'm getting a little bit of the good price and a little bit of the features, rather than really thinking carefully. Do I need this number of features? Maybe the the really cheap blender will work for me because I'm only going to pull my blender out once a year. Right. Or maybe I'm the sort of person who's going to become a smoothie king, right? <laughs> and and I'm gonna I'm I, and really that Rolls Royce of blenders is the right one for me. So. Right. You know, we, we often defer 
these decisions and push them off till later in the hope that somebody's just going to give us the perfect option. Um, what what the new research suggests, though, is that if if I actually put myself in a situation in which I create a real motivational conflict between the goals, and what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes we make decisions kind of dispassionately. You know, when you go to Bed Bath & Beyond, yeah. you generally aren't that engaged in the choice, right? You're not feeling like you need to use that blender right now. But imagine I put you in a situation in which I really make you feel both the the importance of saving money and the real need to have a blender, mm-hmm. right? So that I'm so that I'm really experiencing this as a, you know motivationally as, as as you know I'm really driven towards both of these. The interesting thing about that situation is that when I'm really engaged in both of these goals at the same time, I now actually. Um, uh, I, I now actually think more carefully about the decision because now my motivational system is so engaged that I actually want to figure out how to resolve this kind of trade-off. Interesting. Do, do you and, have to be motivated on both sides of the dilemma? Like I'm thinking if a, if a husband's motivated on his position and the wife's motivated on hers, but he's not, he doesn't, he hasn't ever gotten into her side of the argument, he may not be able to solve it. Does that make sense? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So you you actually need the conflict internally. Okay. Right? So yeah. because if you're if you're only motivated on one side, then you just you just pick that one side, yeah. right? And, Defend and, it. And, yeah. And, right. And and so you know, you're you, you know, that kind of, of of fight you're talking about, you know, where a couple gets into a real argument because one of them wants one thing, one of them wants mm-hmm. the other. Um, if you don't internalize the other person's part of the conflict, then you just dig your heels in. Uh, and 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 fight it out, or you know what you you engage in that other strategy. Sometimes you use uh, people use, which also isn't so good, where they just go fine, have what you yeah, want. They give in, and I'm just gonna, yeah. and I'm going to resent you for it forever. Which is compromise uh, again, right? So they just go back to compromise. Well, yeah, exactly. Or give or, up. or giving up your your thing altogether. Yeah, your win. Actually. Yeah. Right. The hard part is the real compromise. The hard part is is to give up a little of what you want uh, and have each side give up a little of what they want. You know, a lot of times they say the best kinds of decisions in those conflict situations are the ones where nobody's really happy uh, immediately. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, again, we're talking with Dr. Art Markman, who is from the University of Texas and is a member of the editorial board of Cognitive Psychology. And one of the things I learned a long time ago is... Um, the more you investigate an issue, the more buyer's remorse you tend to have. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Uh, it seems it, it seems counterintuitive, but it's exactly what you're saying here because yeah. you're investing emotion. Well, that's right, and it and and so it. Well, it, there's actually so there's a lot of interesting research on things like buyer's remorse, and a lot of how how much of that you experience depends a little bit on what you end up focusing on. Okay. So if you focus, even if you look into the decision further, if you focus on the wonderful aspects of the choice you made compared to the things you could have had, you'll still feel good about your choice. The problem is when we look into things further, we often tend to focus on what what might have been. Oh yeah. Right? You know, and and so the grass is always greener and and the more that you focus on the things you could have had had you chosen differently, then the more buyers remorse you experience. And so it you know, it it really does suggest that after you make a choice and commit to that choice, you really want to focus yourself on on the really enjoyable aspects of that choice you made, recognizing that yes, you could have done it differently, but you didn't. 
So so live it live in the decision you made. Yeah, and I guess kind of get over it uh, in a way. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, let's yeah. let's come back. We're talking with Dr. Art Markman. We'll be right back. More with Art talking about better decision making right here on the Matt Townsend Show. show. It's election day and we live in a democratic society that's supposedly all about choice and having a say in big decisions. So we are learning about how to make better decisions in general today. Maybe today's interviews will, in the end, help us be better citizens as well. So we're listening to an expert, Art Markman, give us tips on how we can make better decisions. He said that a lot of people make decisions that require trade-offs, and sometimes it's just so difficult to think that by choosing one thing, you'll be giving up another thing, that we often just push off decisions altogether in hopes that someone will come up with some perfect option. But he ended the last segment talking about making decisions based on motivations versus features. For instance, sometimes you choose the most expensive blender because you see that it has a bunch of handy features compared to the other brands. But how much will you really be engaging with that blender or those features individually? When it comes to making decisions with people like choosing a spouse, though, you can't really base those things off of just features. So let's continue listening to Matt and Dr. Markman discuss this idea of comparative versus individual decisions and what it means to engage with your decisions motivationally. Does it? I mean, it's interesting. So you're basically saying some of us just make decisions, I guess, on the surface level of the the trade offs. But yeah. you're saying to make it to make difficult decision making work for you better, you have to kind of take it out of the features discussion and maybe somehow turn it into something that actually motivates you. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and and there's there's several reasons for wanting to do that. One of which is that that when you actually use the choice that you're making, right, whatever it is, right. you know, if it's a blender or, uh, or a car or an apartment or whatever it is, you know, you want to actually put yourself into the situation that you're going to experience when you use the thing. And one of the things to remember about a lot of our choices is that we often make our choices comparatively, but then we use things individually. Oh, so, yeah, true. You know, you know, so 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 you know, you stand in front of that wall of blenders, and and you're you're comparing three or sometimes at Bed Bath and Beyond twenty different <laughs> blenders, um, but when you get home, you're only going to have one. There's right, only that's be right. One blender on the counter, and so one of the things that you really want to do is to stand in front of that one that you're thinking of buying and ask yourself, what's it going to be like to have this thing in my house? Is 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 this thing alone what I want? Because you're not going to experience it comparatively again. It's right. just going to be that thing that's on your counter, and and a lot of times we just we we really don't take that into consideration, and so we pick the thing that feels best as part of the comparison rather than thinking about what do I really need. So, so we often, for example, over-purchase, 
right? We, we, we buy things that have too many features that we didn't need, and we spend too much money on it because we're really not thinking about what we're going to use it for when we've got the thing at home. Well, and I guess that's the, that's the marketer's delight, right? I mean, now they're like, ah, now we've got them confused with features. But it's, <laughs> well, that's, it's interesting. That's right. I mean, but it seems like that's, I guess, one of the keys to all decision-making. So if this wasn't even a retail purchase, but this was the decision of – uh, you know, the, the person you're dating or somebody you care mm-hmm. about. And you really have to think about it, not just in the idyllic comparative, well, she's got this and she's got this and ideally in the future, but that very question of what's it going to be like working with this person every day in my life that, I mean, even bringing it that close to you could be very helpful. Yes. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. You know, you you really want to you really want to be thinking about a lot of these important choices in terms of of, you know, what is it that that is is going to stand out for you both in the near term and in the long term. You know, you think about careers for example, you know, a lot of times uh, uh college students will will think a lot about, well, what career should I take? And they start thinking about, well, this will make me a lot of money. You know, I don't necessarily like it so much, but but at least I'll have the security of the money. And without thinking about, you know, 10 years from now, am I still going to be able to get myself out of bed to want to do this thing right. every day? It's you interesting. Know, and, and yeah. No matter how much stuff you surround yourself with in your life, you know, that stuff isn't going to make you happy if you don't really feel like getting out of bed because because you don't enjoy the things that you do. And and that's why it's so important to be thinking thinking about you know do is this is this something I I really just you know is this really something that I like to do? Now, what do you call the difference? Uh, like, is one just a feature, features versus you know fixed motivation? Do you have names for those? What are the different yeah, so, types? Well, that's a that's a yeah, it's a great question. So I would say that that on the on the one hand, there there are two different dimensions here that matter. The first is. Is, is as we talked about this difference between making comparative decisions versus yeah. individual decisions, and I think that that you y- you have to ask yourself what is the context in which I'm going to experience this thing, and if it's going to be an individual context, then I really want to focus on each option as an individual rather than making the decision comparatively. That's, That's one it. part. Then the other part is to ask yourself when I engage with this thing, am I going to have to engage with this thing motivationally? Right. So, right. and 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 a lot of the the things in our life are are things we need to engage with motivationally, but some of them aren't. Right. So so you know my my blender, for example, you know I'm I'm probably going to create habits out of that yeah. thing in the long term. And so really, the features of the blender probably matter more than anything else. I don't need to love my blender, right? probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, right? you probably ought not. Right. But I should probably love my job yeah. and I should probably love my spouse. Yeah. Right. So those are things where, where I really want to ask myself when I really engage motivationally with these things. Um, you know, can I, you know, in those situations, am I, you know, do I really feel comfortable motivationally with this? And, and that's the, you know, that, that's another element of this that matters. So you probably don't want to pick your spouse just on the basis of features. Yeah, no, totally. You know? and, and again, that's, yeah, like they're rich or they're, you know, they're pretty, they're beautiful. There's, there's right. more depth than that. Love it. Love it. Appreciate you again. Dr. Art Markman, keep up the great work and keep... Keep uh, pushing the envelope at all sides. Again, Art Markman, Ph.D. Go to his website, artmarkman.com. And uh, when you go there, just a great great writer at Psychology Today 
an innovator. Check out his books as well, artmarkman.com. Show. We just finished up an interview about how to make better decisions with Dr. Art Markman. He brought up a few interesting points like that we tend to make our decisions comparatively when we use things individually. For instance, at the store buying a blender, you are comparing it to all the other blenders on the shelf, but when you take it home, you're only going to have that one blender. So maybe the most expensive one with the million features looks pretty appealing when it's sitting right next to the one with just a couple buttons. But maybe when you bring it home and there's nothing to compare it to anymore, you'll realize that you don't actually need all of the extra features. And in fact, it makes it so much more complicated to use and it's, you know, maybe really bulky to store or something. So he talked about this concept of thinking about things individually when making decisions instead of necessarily always comparing them to other things. And he also said that it's so important to consider the context you will be experiencing this thing or this decision How will this thing or this decision affect you disregarding all the other decisions that surround it? So the reason that we are talking about making good decisions today is because it's election day and there are a lot of decisions being made and we actually all had the opportunity to make our own decisions and decide what policies we were in favor of and what candidate represented our personal views best. But coming up with that identity can be very difficult, I think. I I was reading an article on USA Today about how it was projected that only one-third of millennials would vote in the midterm elections. And I'll be honest, voting wasn't necessarily the first thing on my priority list either. Even though I know it's important, it just kept slipping my mind. And I think for a lot of people, especially millennials and those young adults just leaving their parents' nest, It's kind of a daunting task. You're not really sure where to start or how to make an educated decision. And especially for those who are just starting out on their own, they haven't really had to make these big decisions on their own yet. So for the second half of the episode, I wanted to play an interview for you with Sean Moon about how parents can help kids make better decisions. Because it's a big, wide world out there and there are a lot of decisions to make. Not just who to vote for, but what to do when you're driving, who to hang out with, how to identify yourself, the list goes on. Now, uh, Sean, you also, you're, you're not coming from this, you know, kind of, you're, you're trying to teach your kids to be leaders, to lead their own lives. And, and you're coming from this, you know, with a lot of executive experience. You've served as an executive vice president. You currently serve as an executive vice president of Global Sales and Delivery at Franklin Covey. So you know leadership. Plus, you've got a great education, and you're just a well-liked guy. So what's well, the big deal? Thank you, Matt. Um, you know, it, it is interesting as you think about I loved, by the way, the sound bites that you shared at the beginning. And yeah. I think the metaphor of teaching your children how to be independent in the car mm-hmm. uh, is a pretty nice metaphor for you know, what is required to teach your children to be independent and ultimately effectively interdependent in life. Yeah. Um, you know, because when you're driving the car, you're not just independent. You've got to you've got to relate to all the other cars on the road. So that's that's a nice that's a nice metaphor. It really, um, and it's just as hard. I mean, it really is. It's deadly too. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? If they don't it do it right, places, it could be... It can take you places fast, That's but right. it can also kill you. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Love it. Tell me, um, tell me, as you just think about this, and as you wrote your book, you obviously thought, you know, the kids needed some tools. Yeah. What, uh, what was the motivation behind your book? Well, there are a couple of things that were a real driver behind the book. The first was... Um, something that occurred many years ago, and uh, not only from my own experience, but but was really with a family member. As I watched this uh, this young person of great promise, you know, and, and, and wonderful potential, but who didn't see it in himself, mm-hmm. go off on his own, somewhat unprepared, um, and then I watched the struggles that he went through, uh, and ultimately made some really terrific choices, and and how. You know, he course-corrected when necessary and, and how it really changed the trajectory of his entire life. I started to think, you know, the seed was planted. Think about the impact and the, and the leverage that these small decisions have at such a pivotal point in someone's life. Oh, yeah. You know, we've talked about, uh, you and I have talked about this, how this age group has been told forever, since they're old enough to understand and even before, the, the marvelous potential and the great people they are and, and, and you know, the difference they're going to make and yeah. they can do this. The and world do is that. at your fingertips. The, the world is at your fingertips, exactly. Yeah. And then that moment of choice comes, and uh, it is so interesting, especially when you talk to a 17-year-old. 17-year-olds are it's an interesting age group. 17, 17 and a half, because all of a sudden the realities of their, in, their pending independence mm-hmm. come hit them straight in the face. Yeah. And I find that, that that's an age where people all of a sudden start to put some brakes on and say, wait a sec, I, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Right. And, uh, and then it comes. So that's the first thing. It was that experience with a family member going through all of that experience. And the second is really my professional career. My, my background is in, uh, in uh, leadership development and consulting, and I spend you know, much of my, my time working with executives and, and, and organizations, public and private and not-for-profit and education, et cetera, on these, these leadership concepts. Right. And I, I had a personal paradigm shift um, when I started to take some of these same leadership concepts that we deal with very senior-level executives and bring them down to uh, high school-age kids and even elementary-age children. And I realized, you know what, they get it. Yeah. It hits the truth button for them, and, and they start to realize, they start to use the language, and they start to see results by aligning themselves with principles of leadership. And so both those things together really were the impetus behind, you know, I, I need to write some of these things down, some of these experiences down, and some of the things that I'm learning. The, these, these, uh, these kids, I say kids because, it, you know, we're yeah. talking about children, okay. but, but these young adults, right. they bring a lot to the table, and, and they have intellectual horsepower that, that grasps these concepts. It's interesting because as you sit, and I know some of your clients are like big, big companies or like military leaders. Right. Um, and as you go and sit and you're teaching leadership to some admiral, and then you then go teach a 17-year-old the exact same principle, it must, right. be, it must be very empowering to think when you can see a 17-year-old grasp that idea and start integrating it into their life. I just spoke recently at a, at a conference that was uh, mostly 17-year-olds, some, some 15, 16-year-olds as well. And I had 
you know, the day with them to talk about these leadership concepts. And they, each of them, they were required to write a letter. So they each, each one of them wrote me a letter to talk about what they had internalized. It was, it was marvelous. Now, the hmm. letter, the language of the letter was written in the language of the 15-year-old or, right. or the 17-year-old. But the commitments they were making, their application to their life was, was really as significant as it is when I'm dealing with, you know, an admiral or a general. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. And, I mean, it's so, it's so, it just unleashes the power, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. You, you do feel empowered because you see them feel empowered. Well, and how horrible nowadays when it's so expensive to go to college anyway, it's so hard to find a job anyway, it's so easy to get into debt, to not go in with a fairly clear vision is going right. to put you so far behind. Right. And that vision, I think, is, is everything. You know, one of the, the, the key things that you're talking about on your show today is tools for parents. And, uh, and honestly, Matt, I think that uh, this idea, this concept of vision is one of the things that is most significant. On the sound bites that you shared a few minutes ago, one of the one of the dads with some angst was talking about, you know, I, I talk and talk and they don't listen and they don't listen. Right. You know, my experience is they do. My experience with my own kids is that there are moments where I think, God, is any of this <laughs> getting through their thick skull? Right. And then I've, I've now had the chance to see two of them go through the whole teenagerhood where there were times I just thought I was speaking to a blank wall. <laughs> and they get to the other side of that, and I realize that many of the things that I was talking about and trying to teach and trying to show by example and not always doing a great job there, you know, because we all make mistakes, sure. but it got through. It got through. They and were they listening. They would start to teach me. They were listening. That, that would be one thing I would just, you know, say to the listening audience that, you know what, just because you don't think they're listening and just because they're giving you exactly zero signals that they're listening doesn't mean they're not listening. Yeah, so keep saying it. Keep, <laughs> Keep saying it. And it's interesting, too, because even if they weren't listening per se, but they were just storing ideas, right. um, they're all going to come back. And, yeah. uh, you know, as the way kind of life rotates back on you, eventually, yeah. as it circles back, you're going to get hit again and again. And then you felt it. You have those moments where all of a sudden your parents' voice just echoes in your head <laughs> and it gives you chills. Yeah. And then you you're actually your saying the same thing. <laughs> yes, isn't that scary? That is. That's great, is. though, actually. So vision. Vision's a key. And, and do you, I mean, maybe the kids just today, I, I think some of this is that things are moving so fast and they're so distracted and we're so distracted as parents and the economy and debt and all this technology. I wonder if we just, are we sitting down enough as parents to help them create that vision? There's so many kids that just don't have a clue who they are. Or what Pro they should be. Yeah, probably not. And it, it does take some concerted time. And I would say that if us as parents haven't taken time ourselves to sit down and reflect deeply on our priorities, on what really is important, then it's difficult for us to think that our kids are going to do that. Right. So that's, that's an important step. You know, the old um, quote that we've all heard so much that no one on their deathbed Wishes they'd spent more time at the office, right? And, uh, and well, yet Nixon we all, did, right? Yeah, and we we all get so um, uh, consumed in the day to day day to grind that uh, it's hard to take a little bit of time to step so back and, and view the big perspective. But if we can do that, then it allows us, I think, to to help us better do that with our kids. 
as you think about the vision there, Sean, and kind of preparing for this, um, we're going to take a break in a minute. But when we come back, I really want to talk about one of the key things, I think, for the for our kids is to have some sense of maybe their talents, their gifts, um, their purpose, and then be able to kind of segue some of this into a job. Right. Um, but so, and, but I guess preceding the job, they also, it seems like, would need some kind of moral root. They need to have some identity of who they are, I guess, morally, um, their values, their principles. Is that part mm-hmm. of the vision then? That is part of the vision. Most definitely. How do you, uh, just quickly, in about a minute, how do you, what's a way right now that parents could open up the dialogue and start talking about that vision, that spiritual well, side? I love the idea that, uh, that Dr. Stephen R. Covey shared. He defined leadership as seeing, um, leadership as seeing someone's worth and potential so clearly they begin to see it in themselves. And mm. I think that same statement could be said about parenthood, that parenthood is seeing someone's worth and potential so clearly that they begin to see it in themselves. Seeing another's worth and potential, seeing your kid's worth and potential, that you're, you have that vision for your, your, your child. And one of the what foundations to this is that sense of who they are, their sense of purpose, their sense of spiritual well-being, um, you know, and, and, and being open with them and talking about it. There are several things that a parent can do um, and that, that the uh, the child could do to uh, to build that foundation, like because um, because honestly, I think if more kids had some feedback coming from their parents about what they you know who they are, what they what they see their talents are. I mean, like I've at this stage in my life, I kind of have learned more and more about what my talents are, and I see that I can actually see my children's talents perhaps better than they even can. Right. Um, So I guess part of that is just helping them point that out. So we'll come back. We're talking to author Sean D. Moon. Sean um, is a great man, great, excellent, and just an incredible human being, wonderful father, leader extraordinaire, wrote the book On Your Own, A Young Adult's Guide to Making Smart Decisions. We'll be back with him and more tools to help you guide your family to a healthier life. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. We're listening to an interview with Sean Moon about how to help your kids make better decisions. And I brought up this topic of choice and making decisions because it's election season and there are a lot of decisions being made and we are all expected to be helping to make those decisions. And one of the cornerstones of good decisions being made for our country are the young people who have tended to kind of tune out of political decisions in a lot of cases. So... How do you teach your kids to make better decisions so they know what to do when they leave the nest and face situations like voting or living on their own or even just hanging out with different groups of people? Sean told parents to keep in mind that their children are listening, even if they don't look like they are, and that your advice will come back to them in their times of need. So don't give up. And he said that the key to helping kids make good decisions is helping them create a vision for their life and for the decisions they need to make. And create this open dialogue for them to find a moral root and find their values, principles, and identity. 
I really love how Sean said that the way you can do this is by seeing your child's worth and potential so clearly that they begin to see it themselves. In the final segment of today's episode, Dr. Moon is going to go into more depth of how you can help your kids catch that vision, and he gives a few specific exercises to do with your kids. Now, uh, Sean, as, we, as we've been talking about it, some of the things in your book, one of the things that we really have to make sure the kids have is choice. They understand that they're, they're an agent in their own life. They're a change right. agent. Right. And then another is vision. And before we took the break, you were talking about the importance of this vision. How, how do we help our kids start to catch a vision of what their life really is about? You know, the, 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 the idea of vision is so powerful. And perhaps there are a couple of uh, uh, conversations that you can engage your, your kids in. And if they're willing, even write some stuff down. I have found that as I've worked with uh, as teenagers in particular, teenagers and young adults, that uh, they are willing to do this. You get them in the right circumstance, and they're willing to do this. And I try to engage them around a few very simple things that help them, um, you know, get a sense of, of their potential and a sense of what they want to do and be. So one thing I'll have them do is I'll write on a sheet of paper just a line, you know, just let it go as long as they want. And at the beginning line, that rep- that dot represents their birth, mm. and then somewhere an inch or two past that, right where we are today, and then at the end of that line, right their death. But it gives them a sense to visually see, you know, my life is a finite thing. I don't have forever. I have I have to start making choices because every choice has a consequence. So mm. that's something that usually is a little bit of a sobering thing for kids to think. Well, I. You know, I, I may not go on forever. I've got to do something with right. this thing that I've got. And then the second exercise I'll take them through is is very reflective, and it's for them to to uh, think about people in their lives that have had, you know, an impact. I love this this uh, quote that was attributed, I think, to Charles Schultz, although I'm not sure he was the one that ultimately wrote it. But he talks about naming the five wealthiest people in the world, naming the five last Heisman Trophy winners, naming ten people who've won the Nobel Prize, questions like that. None of us know the answer to those questions. But then get to questions like, name a few teachers who aided your journey. Well, we can all think of that. Name three friends who helped you at a time of need. We can think of that. Name five people who have taught you something worthwhile. Things like that, they all start start to, to think introspectively. And then I'll... I'll ask them to think about influential leaders. Uh, when I do this with teenagers, you know, it's almost always, not surprisingly, they almost always identify a parent or their parent. Do they now? Oh, that's they great. They do. Yeah, they do. Now, if parents are doing it, they may not. Yeah. <laughs> but when someone other than their parent does that, they, they bring that up. They'll talk about a teacher. They'll talk about a friend. Well, at least they're not bringing up their parole officer, you right? Know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. That, that would be bad. <laughs> But that, I mean, it's a, it's a great sign that, uh, it's interesting. All of the people they're bringing up, though, are the people that they have personal relationships with. That's right. Those so the personal are really what end up mattering. Yeah, at a personal level somehow. So when you, you identify that list of people, and then you ask them, what is it about those people that was significant? And they'll write down, they loved me, they saw, they saw potential in me, they did this for me. And they start to identify these traits. And, and so when we translate, that's what someone did for you. Now, what do you want to do for others? They start to see themselves in that leader role. They start to see themselves as someone who is capable of, um, 
of doing significant things. Then I, I, I engage them in a process where we talk about things that you want to have in this life. This can be material possessions. This can be immaterial possessions. It can be, but what are those? Tra- it could be traits, qualities of character. But what do you want to have? Hmm. What do you want to do? Things you want. You want to travel. You want to get your your PhD. You want to go to medical school or law school or you want to go to nursing school. And what do you want to be? And these are qualities of character. And we've just talked about the, the, the leaders that have made a difference in your life. Right. You know, what, what can you be, become? What type of person? And I see, lots of, uh, I see lots of pens and pencils moving rapidly in this section. People like to think about their material possessions. But beyond that, they realize, you know, having a, a hot car is cool, and I'd like that someday. But I want to be a person like my dad. Yeah, I want to be I, someone yeah. like my mom. Um, this could even just be done via email, right? I mean, could. you could just you could just slowly start sending out these questions That's to right. your kids while they're away at school, and and just have them think about it for a week. And next time I call you, I want to I'd love to hear some answers. And Matt, I think that's an important point. I find that this process is best when it is done over a period of time. Sure. And yeah. not, not in a 30-minute, uh, you know, sit down and you're going to listen to me talk kind of session. But And you but, really want them enrolled in it. I mean, it's it, it's amazing, though. They, like my daughter, who's um, out of the country, you know, just visiting dangerous places. Um, <laughs> that's all. all of the sudden, that's all. But uh, it's interesting. She knows. She knows how she wants to influence the world. And she she just kind of did it on her own. And and it's interesting, too, because she even as she dates people, she runs them through this filter. Is this somebody that wants to serve the world that way? Is this somebody yeah. that wants to do that? And and it ends up being a great tool, I guess, to help her make these decisions. I had an interesting experience just a couple of weeks ago. I have a, a son who's the same age as your daughter, and he, like your daughter, is out of the country. And so he wrote me this letter, and, and uh, he was talking about these concepts, and he, he was teasing himself. He said, gosh, Dad, I'm starting to sound just like you. You know, that's, that's a good moment for a dad. Yeah. Because he was one of those for a period of time, I wonder, is anything ever getting through this kid's <laughs> skull? But sure enough, you know, drip by drip, it, it does. It's working. It is. I love it. Sure. See, I, I think it's, that's, that's payday for a parent, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the keys, too, I guess, with all of this vision and these choices is that they really need to go get a job. They need to get a career. They need to figure out how they're going to make it on their own. Because if they don't, they're coming home, Sean. They're coming back, and they're going to raise their family in your house. Yeah. So what, what are some tools? I know in your book you address kind of getting a job. What are some principles that you teach um, that might be good good things for the parents to teach as their kids are out there trying to get a job, trying to find a career? Well, first thing, get that basement apartment ready. <laughs> That's right. Get oh, it I'm ready. Kidding. I'm kidding. Fall back. Um, I, I've identified, and there's just, there's, you know, I'm not the expert on this. I've identified 10 critical uh, activities or, or behaviors that need to be addressed that I think you can, you can, as parents, you can train around and at least engaged in some constructive conversation around this. And, and, you know, when you're 16, you probably don't care much about it. But when you're 18 and you, and you have to start thinking about what am I going to declare as my major, all of a sudden this becomes important. And these tools then 
translate a transition from being something that mom or dad made me go through to something that becomes a bit of a lifeline. Yeah, exactly. And, and they include things like just what I've talked about, engaging in discussion about priorities, about vision and about what, you know, what you want to do and what you want to be. That's, that's an important discussion. I know something that, uh, that was critical in my own experience. And I found this to be the case as I've interviewed, uh, literally hundreds of, uh, of uh, young adults going through this same process, this idea of broadening your perspective. Hmm. Just as you sent your daughter off into the into the scary world, um, you know, every every person needs to have an experience like that. My right. father uh, did that uh, with me when I was young. You know, I was I was still just a child, but I had the opportunity at, at great sacrifice on his part to uh, experience uh, something outside the small, somewhat isolated valley that I grew up in. Uh, and we, we spent uh, an extended period of time overseas, and I saw poverty, I saw corrupt government, mm. I saw police brutality, I saw uh, wonderful people that, that lived a life very, very different from mine, and, and I started to develop a, a sense of the world and a sense of the goodness and a sense of the challenge that is out there. And that, that did inform what I wanted to, to study yeah, that, and what I wanted to become. That's interesting because that seems like, too, where a lot of parents would be afraid is, you know, we don't want it to go too—sure, we don't, sure, we want them to expand their horizon, but we don't want it to be the world horizon. <laughs> just, it, it is just hard. This, and Matt, think about the experience with your own daughter now oh, that she's— She's off, in and, Israel. And how difficult— that is, as a parent, to, to be willing to cut the apron strings oh, a little yeah. bit and, and let her go experience that. But just what her letters already are just, it's, they're mind-boggling, what yeah. she's learning. Yeah, the growth that occurs and the clarity of thinking that occurs in an experience like that is profound. It's like, I guess what we do is we expand, and then they'll kind of naturally probably retract back to a different yeah. level, but hopefully more expanded, more open having seen the world. So broadening perspectives is a huge one. Uh, what do you think? One of the things I find, I have a lot of people that come up to me, um, and, and a lot of people like want to do what I do. They say they want to do what I do. They want the, you know, they want to go speak and travel and all these things and have shows. And, but I, I noticed that some of them aren't willing to pay the piper. That's true. Have you noticed that? That is true. And I had a conversation recently with, uh, with a young adult who, um, was considering uh, dropping out of school because of a job opportunity. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I pled with him, do not do that. You have to be willing to pay the price. Yeah. And that's one of the key principles. I, one of my favorite business books is uh, written by a, a fellow named Jim Collins, who wrote several books, including um, uh, Built to Last, Built to last. and uh, Good, Good to, to Great. great. <laughs> and uh, in Good to Great, he talks about his friend Dave Scott, who's won the, the Ironman, Hawaiian Ironman, Kona Ironman, six times. Wow. And he talks about, he goes through his, the training that Dave wow. engages every day. And, you know, 75-mile bike ride, then swim 20,000 meters, then run 17 miles on an average day the entire Jeez. year. And one of the things that Dave does in his morning routine is he's, he's eating his, his prescribed breakfast. He takes his cottage cheese and he rinses it. I thought, what? (laughs) He's rinsing his cottage cheese because he wants to make sure that he pays the price in every single detail. He doesn't want any detail uh, not not addressed. And I I put chocolate sauce on my cottage cheese. (laughs) That is crazy. I mean, see, but think of that, and then every hey, I want to be just like that guy. 
No, you yeah, don't. The, I mean, you the won't. The metaphor of, of rinsing, being willing to rinse yeah. your cottage cheese. Do you I've have that about character? That with my kids. I love that. That is that's enormous. So, pay the price. They've got to learn to pay the price. It's it's. It may have just been too easy, or maybe as parents, sometimes we make it look too easy. But there's something about being willing to do it. Um, what are some other keys for them to go get a job that you see that are critical? You know, I think it's okay, in addition to being able, willing to pay the price, which sometimes means going through hard classes or enduring jobs that you don't like, that's right. part of paying the price, is to then pursue that which you're passionate about. Robert Frost talks about the, uh, you know, combining your avocation, what you love I to love do, that. Yeah, with your vocation, what you do for work. And when you can combine those things, that's critical. I and as a teenager, I flipped burgers and scooped ice cream and, and watered plants at a nursery and mowed lawns and, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff that teenagers do to earn money. And I realized that uh, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. But right. if I hadn't had that experience, I'm not sure I would have appreciated, um, you know, the price that I did pay. So, how, I mean, that's interesting because I guess that, that's every piece of that was to broaden the perspective as well. You, yeah. you had the perspective. Then you, you put in the energy to make it work. Um, how do you get your kids to, to maybe select and make better decisions? How do you get them to actually decide between one option or another? I mean, these kids getting internships, they've got two really good options. How do they decide which one's the go-ahead, which one's not? Well, they need to explore their values. They need to explore what, what they really want to do. Then they need to spend time talking with people. I've, I've found that if you can, and I do lots of these kinds of interviews with young adults, and I send young adults to talk to a bunch of different people. I have a good friend who his whole life he wanted to be an attorney. And then when he did some interviews and did a little schooling, he realized, no, I really no don't want to do that. I, I discovered. <laughs> That's crazy. But, but he had to you know, learn from some experts, do an internship, talk to someone who is an attorney or is a, is a physician, and, and see what their life is like. I interviewed uh, one CEO, and I, I said, well, you know, how do you make decisions? You're a CEO. You're not 21 years old, so you've kind of figured some things out. And he, he was very helpful. He spelled out some of the things that he goes through, and he, you know, he wants to make a good living. But, it, the, but that was not the top of his list. Hmm. He, he realized for him he needed to do stuff that, that rung his bell, that, that he was passionate about. He needed to do stuff that uh, uh, engaged him with smart people. So he knew that working with other people was something that was... Uh, uh, important to him. Love I know one, one uh, physician I, I interviewed, you know, he realized he didn't really like working with people. So he chose a, a medical uh, field that uh, really allowed him to use his, his science and his studies, but didn't require him to interact with people very often. Oh, okay. Some of those things you don't learn no. until you get into. Yeah. See, I mean, oh, totally. And then you're so glad you learned. Because yeah. what if you had gone to med school? <laughs> what if you had gone all the way into the program, then you realize you hate blood? Well, and I'm telling you, Matt, I see this a lot. Yeah. I know you do as well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You, you, you encounter people who, who you know, they're climbing the proverbial ladder of success, and they go rung after rung after rung, and all the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into that experience, and they get to the top of the ladder only to realize that it's leaning against the wrong wall. And they're, they're, they, they're not where they wanted to be. Right. And it doesn't seem like this is a time or an age where you can afford decision. You know, you can't make those mistakes. 
Yeah. I mean, you can. I guess you can recover, but it's just more time. Hey, Sean, as we wrap up, uh, give us one more. What's the number one thing? What's the if we if if we as parents could help our children do one thing? Uh, what what would that one thing be? And then what challenge would you leave us with? What's the one thing they could do? I would I would suggest that. Uh, Going through the process of creating a personal mission statement is is the one thing. Um, it's a difficult process. It, it's something that requires a bunch of time and a lot of introspection, and you're not going to get it exactly right the first time. But but if they're willing to go through that, that will begin to clarify. And instead of being an event, it will become a bit of a process that may take them a few years, but it starts to get them thinking about what really is important. And this doesn't just apply to work. It applies to, you know, who am I as a person? What do I stand for? What do I believe? What are my values? What is my sense of spirituality? Then it'll extend to, now what do I want to study? And what kinds of contributions do I want to make in the world? And then it becomes to, what, what sort of person do I want to be? And what, what, what legacy do I want to leave as I, as I begin my own family? What kind of mother or father do I want to be? Love so it. this process of starting, you know, your personal constitution, um, there are a number of activities and things that you could do, but just starting the conversation is critical. It will be less meaningful when they're 15 yeah. and more meaningful when they're 18 and a lot more meaningful when they're 21. And, uh, you know, past the point of, of hope when you're 70. No, actually. <laughs> <laughs> actually, there is still hope, isn't there? There is still hope. It doesn't matter when you find the vision, just as long as you catch it. So maybe parenting is more than just feeding and clothing your kids until they become adults. It's about helping to prepare them to make these decisions when they go into the world to live independently and interdependently amongst others. I like the principles Dr. Moon taught us there of what to teach kids to help them be able to go out and find jobs that suit them and be good members of society, and I might add, be educated voters in integral parts of the community. He said to help them be willing to pay the price of their choices and their dreams, to let them know it's important to pursue what they're passionate about, and to teach them how to explore their values and talk to others. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope these interviews help us all to make decisions a little bit better and to become more educated and responsible citizens in our communities. I'm Leanna Tan, bringing you the best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Join me again next time for another episode of Matt Townsend.